you have your Bible, John chapter 11. Great job, y'all. Thank y'all. All right. And wasn't that good worship tonight? I tell you, I, um, sometimes I love just the, the simple style of worship. Just a, just a guitar and, and voices. Sometimes I think we get, we get in this performance mode where we've got to have everything lined up perfectly and the drums have got to come in at this set and the lights got to change at this set and all this has got to come together. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I, I, I enjoy that. But just to, to simply come and just worship the Lord like we did tonight. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. I, I thank you guys for leading us in that. She wasn't feeling real good, but came through, and I, I thank you for that. We're going to finish up. We've been in uh, John chapter 11 um, this morning and then two weeks ago on Sunday night. And so we're just going to kind of tie it up this evening. And I want you to think about this. What is the proper, the proper response to Jesus? What is the proper response to Jesus? As we go through life, people try to put us in various categories. Well, people are rich or people are poor. People are black or people are white. People are uneducated or they are educated. People, and there's all these different categories that culture tries to put people into but it really comes down to this people are lost or people are saved people choose to follow Christ or they choose to not follow Christ and we can go through life and we can we can pretend to be on one side or we can pretend to be on the other side but the Bible makes it clear that the day is coming when the Lord is going to return and he is going to separate those two groups. There's the group of the wheat and the tares. There's the group of the sheep and the goats. There is the grouping of the lost and the found. And that is really the only grouping that, that matters in life. What is our response to the Lord Jesus Christ? You have been with us on this journey. Most of you have. Just remember we are looking at the the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. The Bible reminds us that uh, Lazarus became sick. He became ill. And so Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus, the one that Jesus loves, is sick. Jesus said that this will not lead to death, but it will lead to the glory of God. And then the Bible says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so because he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus waited two days before he made the journey to Bethany. After two days, he finds his disciples, he gathers his disciples, and he says, let us go back to Bethany. Remember, they were not real excited. Going back to Bethany means going close to Jerusalem. It's about two miles to the side of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, they are looking to kill Jesus. They've already tried to stone him. They have tried to kill him several times. But Jesus persists, and Jesus and the disciples come into Bethany. Uh, they find Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha end up eventually going to the tomb. They pull the rock away, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Beautiful moment. I can't imagine. Can you imagine just seeing a man that has been dead for four days come up out of that tomb? 
It had to be incredible. I know we've heard and we know about Lazarus, so it's easy just to go through it in our mind. But just to to be a, a bystander just watching in that moment as there is this man that has been dead one day, two days, three days, four days. His body has already started the the decomposition. And he comes to life and he comes out of that tomb. And can you imagine the next few days, weeks, and months? Can you imagine as Lazarus goes to the local Walmart and he goes into Walmart and he's just doing shopping, he's going through pushing his buggy, and everybody looks and they, they say, that's Lazarus. He was dead. He wasn't just kind of dead. Lazarus was dead, dead, dead. And there he is pushing that buggy. And then he goes to Starbucks and he's just drinking his little fancy coffee. And people look and say, do you see that? That's Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and now he just paid $6 for that cup of coffee. <laughs> Y'all don't do that. That is a ripoff. If you're going to make coffee, make it at home. Don't waste your money. I'm getting sidetracked. But there he is. There's Lazarus. And Lazarus became a walking testimony of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times the miracles are called signs and wonders. You know why? Because they are signs of the power of God. They are signs that point to the power of God. They are so that God may be glorified. They are so that that people will look and they will see what the Lord has done and they will be drawn into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Lazarus went throughout his life and as he walked and as he built relationships and as he went from one place to the next place, people were constantly looking at Lazarus. They were pointing at Lazarus. And they were reminded of what Jesus had done on this day. I just, before we get into it, our life ought to be like that. I I know that there's no physical resurrection in our life. I I know that maybe you say, well, it's a little bit different. But spiritually, we have life now. The Bible speaks that we were dead in our trespasses. We were against God. We were lost. We had no purpose in our life. But since then, those of us who are children of God, we have found purpose, we have found joy, we have found peace, we have found all the things that the Lord blesses our life with. And so in the same as it is for Lazarus, it ought to be for us. It ought to be that as we go to Walmart, and as you go, I don't go, as you go to Starbucks, that people look at you and they see you and they begin to whisper because they see a change in your life. Lazarus was dead, now he's alive. We were lost, but now we are found. We used to live in lies, but now we live in truth. We used to live for ourselves, but now we live for God. We used to live for money, but now we live for his kingdom. There's all these changes that that come in and they take place in our life. And when we live a life that honors God, people will notice Because it is very much against culture. It is very much against the norm of society. And so people will see that in our lives. My problem is, I just don't always live the life that I should. And maybe you can relate to that. My problem is that I don't always show that distinction in my life. But I should. John chapter 11. And we are going to pick up in verse 45. Verse 45, Jesus has just raised 
Lazarus from the dead. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We see the, the separation right here. There's, there's a crowd, remember? There's the Jewish people that have come to watch. There are the disciples. There's Mary. There's Martha. There's Lazarus. There's a great crowd of people, and they are gathered, and they are watching these events. The Bible says that many, most, many saw what Jesus has done, and they believed. How could you not believe? There's a man who was dead, and now he's alive. So they see this, and they say, that is incredible, and they, they begin to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we would expect, right? We would expect, you see a man that is dead, and now he's alive. That's incredible. So you would become a follower of Jesus. But then the Bible says, but there are some that went to the Pharisees, they didn't believe, and they told them what Jesus had done. They don't believe, but they take this as an opportunity to run to the Pharisees. You remember, the Pharisees are looking for a way to destroy Jesus. They're looking for a way to trap Jesus. We're coming to the end of the ministry of Jesus right here in this text, and the religious leaders are trying to put an end to this Jesus movement. And so some are watching the details. They're watching as this man comes to life. They're watching as he walks out. They're watching as the people unbind him, and he begins to talk, and he begins to walk, and he begins to live life, and he begins to inhale, and he begins to exhale. And they see that, and rather than place their trust in Jesus, the Bible says there are some, and they run back to Jerusalem, and they find the Pharisees, and they tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. You know, the Bible talks about there are some who their eyes have been blinded by the enemy. And it does not matter what they see. It doesn't matter what they hear. It doesn't matter what happens. Their eyes are shut. I'm amazed by it because we can do it in a church service. We come in, and we all hear the same message, don't we? Same message, the same worship experience, the same movement of God, the same prayers, the same scripture, the same experience happens, and some are moved towards Jesus, and some are moved away from Jesus. And we see it right here. They run to the Pharisees, and they begin to report this dangerous behavior on the part of Jesus. It says, So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council, and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The Pharisees were limited in their power. They did not have the judicial authority. And so they had to call together the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made of 71 members. Presiding over the Sanhedrin was the chief priest. In this case, it was Caiaphas. Under the chief priest, there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. Mostly Sadducees, but there were also many Pharisees. It is the religious leaders of the day. It is the men who had the authority. It is the men who had the clout. It is the men who, they walk down the street and everybody knows who they are. In this council, it represents the power 
of Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees draw together the Sanhedrin and they come together to discuss what Jesus has done. And they come together and they say, what are we to do for this man performs signs? What are we to do? How are we going to work in this situation? What are we doing? And it's not that they are searching their soul and saying, could it be that he's the Messiah? They're already past that. These men have already decided that they are enemies of Jesus. They're looking for ways to oppose Jesus. And they say, with this new miracle insight, what are we going to do to put a stop to Jesus? They are so blinded by their hatred that they miss the reality right in front of them. They say, what are we to do? Well, what you're doing is you are rejecting the Messiah. They see that this miracle has been performed, and they know that, but they don't give any credit to Jesus because of it. They see that people begin to follow Jesus in the multitudes, but instead of rejoicing, they want to see this squashed as quickly as they can. They have already made up their mind, and so now they are sure of what they need to do. And the point is, we see the whole picture right here. We are given this account. We see what happened, and we see how badly they missed it, don't we? I mean, we can watch it. I can read this, and I'm thinking, guys, these are smart men. How do you miss this? How do you miss that Jesus just brought a man back to life, and now you're trying to kill him? How do you miss it? But even in our world, we see it, don't we? We see people who are so opposed to the things of Christ. It doesn't matter what we preach. It doesn't matter what we teach. It doesn't matter what we do and what they see. They are totally opposed to the things of Christ. Let's keep reading. He says, if we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation. The leaders find it impossible to deny what Jesus has done. You know, they don't come in and say, I don't believe he really raised Lazarus. You can't argue that. The man was dead for four days. Now he's walking around. You cannot argue the miracle that Jesus has done. And so they come instead and they said, if we let this go on, if we let this continue, everyone is going to believe in him. It's such a tremendous feat. Everybody will believe in him. And that's not a good thing. Because if everybody believes in him, the Romans will come and they will take away our place and they will take away our nation. Here's the context. When you read the Gospels, you will read that the religious leaders are always opposed to Jesus. Right? You see that, don't you? There's just always an opposition and maybe you've said, well, why is that? The reason why is that they are driven by their own position of power and authority. The Romans would allow the religious leaders to rule the Jewish people. And so the chief priest and then under that, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would rule over the people as long as the people stayed in line. 
If the people got out of line, all of a sudden Rome would come in and they would take control, they would take the power back, and they would begin to rule over the Jewish people. And so as long as Caiaphas and these religious leaders kept everything calm, they could continue in the life that they had built. And they had built themselves a pretty good life. They're going through life and they're wealthy and they have status and they have power and they have prestige and so the life that they have built is good and they don't want to see anybody come in and mess it up we see a lot of that today too don't we we see it in politics we see in politics where we see these these laws or these choices made and they don't benefit the people who do they benefit politicians and so they cover themselves that's what we see here we see it in all types of leadership we see it in many jobs to where the best decision for the company is not made. The best individual may not be promoted, but we do what's best to cover ourselves. You see it in church leadership. You can see it in all different avenues when it comes to people in power, but that's what we see. These men are guarding their position. They want to keep things the way that they are. And Jesus' miracles would often come in and cause disturbance. If the people begin to see Jesus and they begin to say, Hell, Jesus, he's my Messiah, he's my king, they say that the Romans will come and they will take away our place. When they say our place, they're talking about the house of worship. They're going to take away our place of worship. They're going to take away our power. They're going to take away our prestige. They're going to take away our position. And so they're trying to protect themselves. And in doing so, they miss the Messiah. They miss the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was the high priest. Caiaphas was proud and Caiaphas was ruthless. His usual policy was to remove any threat to his power by whatever means necessary. In the Old Testament, we see that the high priest calling was a lifetime calling. But in this day, the Romans came in and they would appoint a high priest. And when they wanted a new high priest, they would appoint a new high priest. And so as Caiaphas was going through life, he was constantly trying to please the Romans. If he kept the Romans happy, then he would keep his position. And so he was constantly looking over his shoulder, trying to figure out if they were going to replace him with someone else. And so Caiaphas sees this uprising with Jesus, and he says, It is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. It's just one man. It's just one man. And so this one man is cheap, and he is expendable. He was stuck in the world, and he was concerned only with himself. He was concerned only with the physical world right in front of him, and he missed the spiritual that was all around him. I wonder if we do that. I wonder if in our life, if we get so caught up with making sure that our life is set up just the way that we want it. I know I'm guilty of this. Making sure that all my bills are going to be paid. 
making sure that my family's in a, a good spot, making sure that we're pleasing the right people, making sure that our life is set up the way that it ought to be set up, and we're so busy focused on this life being set up right that we miss the spiritual world all around us. We miss the things that really matter most because we're so focused on what we've got, the treasure that we're holding on to in this world. That's what Caiaphas is. He is blinded to the huge picture around him, and he's focused on this, this little bit of power that he has. For Caiaphas, Jesus' death was not an if, but a when, a where, and a how. Nothing short of destroying Jesus would save Israel from being destroyed by Rome. And so he says, it is best, it is best for us, it is best for our position, and it is best for our people. We must kill Jesus. The decision has been made. One man will have to die to save the nation of Israel. Isn't that amazing that he said that? It's really prophetic what he says. And then the Bible continues. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. He said something, and he didn't realize what he was saying. Caiaphas says, this man has to die because politically it will save everyone else. God came in and he twisted that and he said, this man has to die, but it's not so that politically everyone else will be saved, but it is so that spiritually everyone will be saved. He says, I will bring together not just the Jewish people, he says, all people, I will bring together the Jews and the Gentiles into salvation. He says, but I will gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so through this death, though it looks to Caiaphas, as it just saves his spot, it saves his hide, it saves his position. God is working behind the scenes. And I love that. There are sometimes we look at leadership and we say, God, why are you letting this dummy in this leadership position? Right? Maybe talk about politics, maybe talk about your job, whatever it is. God, why are you letting this happen? Let me just remind you, God is always at work. God is working. God has placed leaders in their position, and God is using these leaders while he has them in their leadership position. And God is using Caiaphas, even though Caiaphas does not even realize it. It's interesting because the Jews rejected the only salvation. They rejected Christ. But in the year 70 AD, they ended up revolting against Rome. Rome came in, and the blood was so thick. Historians talk about the blood just being so thick that it was rushing down the streets. They came in, they destroyed the temple. Everything that we see they're trying to save, it was destroyed in just a few years later. It could have all been different had they realized the Messiah in their midst. And then it says, so from that day, they made a plan to put him to death. In short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he has already been found guilty. That's why when we see the arrest and the trial of Jesus, it's a mock trial. This is where they decided. This is where they decided Jesus must die. And what does it go back to? It goes back to the raising of Lazarus. It goes back to this powerful miracle that no one could deny. 
Nobody could reject it. No one could say it didn't happen. And when the religious leaders saw this power, they were afraid. They were afraid of what it would cost them in their life, and so they had to put an end to it. And it could be that there are many who were scared to surrender totally to the Lord Jesus Christ because if we do, it's going to cost us something. We don't talk about that a lot. We talk about just come on, get saved, and your life will go on like usual. That's not biblical. To follow Jesus, it means your life is going to change. Your priorities will change. It might be your position and your power, they change. It might be the way you carry business, it changes. It might be the way you lead your family, it changes. When we follow Christ, our life changes, and there are many who will not make the change. They say the cost is too high, and I'd rather just go on the way that I'm going. And it may work for a few years, but there's coming a day when you'll realize that is the biggest mistake you'll ever make. And so we see one response to Jesus. We see one response to the resurrection, and it was a response that wanted nothing to do with him. They said, we want you dead. We want you done away with. Now let's look at one more. Look at chapter 12, and I promise you we're going to move quickly here. Chapter 12, we see another response, and this is where Mary anoints Jesus. Now, before we dig into it, there is a, a story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that is similar to what we read here. What I want you to see is that in John and in Matthew and in Mark, the stories are similar. They take place at Bethany. They are towards the end of the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew and Mark, the woman is not named, but she comes and anoints the head of Jesus with ointment taken from a jar. The disciples in both Matthew, Mark, and John were angry. They're angry because there is a waste of such, such wealth, a waste of such money. And Jesus has to correct them, saying that this woman has prepared his body for burial. So, what I believe is that Matthew, Mark, and John are all talking about the same event. But when you get to Luke, you see another example. In Luke chapter 7, we see a woman come, and she anoints Jesus in a similar way, but this woman is said to be a woman of immoral character. This is a picture that is shown that a woman comes, and she falls at the feet of Jesus as he is eating at the home of a, a Pharisee, and she falls down and she's weeping and her tears are falling on his feet, and she begins to pour out an ointment and take her hair down and wipe his feet. But the point of the Luke narrative is that there's a Pharisee present, and the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if Jesus knew the kind of woman this is, Jesus would not let this woman touch him Jesus does not know who this woman is, therefore Jesus is not truly the Messiah. You remember? Totally just judging who Jesus is on the fact that this woman has come in and is even touching his feet. And Jesus begins to call out the Pharisee and talk about this woman and how she has been forgiven much. And so it's really... Very obviously, it's two different accounts, two different stories. It's not the same. It's not the same woman. It's not the same place. It's not the same event. It's not the same episode. There are two different ones that we see in the Bible. 
They have similarities, and sometimes that causes us to get them confused. But one is Mary, and one is a woman, probably maybe a prostitute of the town, who finds forgiveness. All right, so let's look here. Look at uh, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. As often did when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he would go and see his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is, this is right before his death, for Jesus had just said, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised again. And so we see that Jesus knows the end of his ministry is coming, and so he goes into the region of Jerusalem one last time. The Bible says, so they gave a dinner, for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. It seems as though this is a celebration feast for what Jesus had done. It's probably been a week, two weeks maybe, since Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so Jesus comes back. It pictures Lazarus at the table. He's probably the guest of honor. He ought to be. He was dead. Now he's alive. We see Martha, and she's doing what she always does. She's using her gift of service, and she is uh, providing the service for the meal. And it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. All of a sudden, we see this familiar, extravagant act of love. Remember in this day, they would be kneeling down to eat and so they would be kind of propped up with their feet away from the table. And so we see Lazarus, we see Martha, we see others are probably gathered around, and here comes Mary. Mary, we've looked at this morning two weeks ago. Here she comes. Remember this morning? She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now she's seen the power of Jesus. Her faith has been strengthened. Her faith is, is strong. She's to the point now that nothing compares to Jesus. There, there's no riches in life. There's nothing in life that compares to, to this Jesus that is, is right here in front of her. And so she goes and, and she gets what is her, her most, most valuable thing that she has. It goes on in verse 12 and verse 5 and says it's worth 300 denarii. You know how much that is? It's a year's wage. And so in our money system, we're talking about this ointment that is worth tens of thousands of dollars. And she comes in to Jesus. We don't read where she says the thing, but she comes in and she takes the ointment and she pours it upon his feet. She just pours it all out. She doesn't pour a drip of it. That's what we do a lot of times. I'm generous. I'm pouring a drip of it. She pours it all out. I don't need it. I've got Jesus. I don't need anything else. And so she pours it all out on the feet of Jesus. And then she did something that women would never do in this culture. She took her hair down. The hair was only for the husband. But she took her hair down and she began to wipe his feet with her hair. She showed the extravagance of her love. The extravagance that said, 
I am all in for you, Jesus. I'm all in. I'm giving you all that I've got. Anything you want, Lord, I've got it. And let me just show it. Let me just prove it to you. I'm pouring it out. I'm pouring my life out to you. And in that moment, we see a love that is genuine, authentic, and that is totally dedicated. Through John 11, we see many people. We see many who come, and they have faith, but it's weak. And their faith needs to grow. We see some who see Jesus and and they want a relationship, so they begin to follow. We see some who come and they see Jesus, but it's not enough. And so they turn around and they go the opposite direction. We see many pictures of, of people who have some sort of relationship with Jesus. But what I want us to leave John 11 with is the picture of Mary. In the beginning, she's got faith. She loves Jesus. That's where many of us are tonight. A Sunday night crowd, I just got to believe that we're here, we're surrendered, we're dedicated, we love Jesus. But as she watched the power of Jesus, her faith grew. And it grew to the point that she poured out her very best because of Jesus. So what is your response? Does Jesus get your best Or does he just get the leftovers? Does he get your best, the best of your time, the best of your abilities, the best of your mind, the best of your actions, the best of your relationship? Does he get your best? Or does he just get what you can squeeze in every now and then? I I get sick of that. I get sick of asking people, hey, are you going to be here to worship with us on Sunday? I will if nothing better comes up. I hate that. That's not what we see with Mary. We see Mary is dedicated. She's committed. She's sold out. It's all that matters is serving Jesus. It doesn't matter if there's a good football game on. It doesn't matter if there's a baseball game. It doesn't matter if it's a pretty day outside and she wants to go out on the lake. None of that matters. She wants to be with Jesus. And I'm not saying it's all about being in church. It goes to all different avenues of life, doesn't it? that we continually are worshiping Jesus. Why? Because we know who he is. This morning we said, do you believe? He said, "Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. And he looks and he says, do you believe? Do you believe? And if you believe, where is your faith? Is your faith where Mary was or is it where Mary is? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for these who have come out, God, and they have a heart that just wants to to grow, God, and wants to study and wants to worship you. And Lord, I thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that you've challenged us tonight. I pray that as we look at the different individuals, God, we look at some who are totally opposed to you. We look at some who have a, a weak faith, and then we see Mary, God. And she is totally surrendered and dedicated and sold out to you. And she's willing to lay her life on the line for you. And I pray that will be true of our lives also. I pray that we will be men and women who are committed. God, as we go to our jobs and we go to town and we go to our families and we go to our friends and wherever we go in life, Lord, people will see us and they will see us as different, as distinct. 
and we'll be distinct because of the relationship that we have with you. Lord, this whole narrative has been about your glory. Lord, now I pray that our lives will bring you glory. This week, may you be honored and glorified through every life that is sitting in here this evening. Lord, that's our prayer. Thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Y'all, well, a few announcements. Let's see. I think I went over everything this morning. Don't forget, we'll be back on Wednesday. Looking forward to a, a great service. Connection is on Wednesday. If you're new visiting with us, come join us for this.